1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for today's show. Let me get right to the panel and start our conversations about the news of politics today. It's Tuesdays, which means uh, Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, how are you? Good, Bill.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, we're very glad you are here. Um, And we are joined by another outstanding journalist, uh, AP's Meg Kennard, who uh, is based in South Carolina, but covers news not just in the state, but uh, the Southeast and across the country for that matter. And in fact, Meg, am I right that um, you filed a piece uh, maybe yesterday that Ron DeSantis has headed up to South Carolina?
2: Hello. And yes, you're absolutely right. Ron DeSantis is coming here for his first public appearance. So I will be there and I'm sure will be the first of many here in South Carolina and, of course, other places.
1: Clearly, South Carolina, Meg, as you can tell us, one of the most important states for Democratic, I mean, for for Republican or Democratic uh, presidential nominees.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's an accident. You know, we see candidates of both major parties here a heck of a lot, have seen plenty of them so far. And uh, yeah, never a dull moment, that is for sure. So I, I will be following as many of them as I can get to.
1: Uh, well, uh, good for you. Uh, we are also joined today uh, for the first time in a while uh, by Senator Sonia Helpern, uh, uh, Democrat from Atlanta, we we didn't have you on often, in fact, not at all during the session, because you were very busy this session, Sonia, so we're really happy to have you back.
3: And I am glad to be back. Yes, this was a very busy session, and I missed my time on Political Rewind, so really excited to join you this morning.
1: <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Leo Smith is back with us as well. Um, he's the CEO and the founder of Engaged Futures, which is a government relations firm But Leo, one of the biggest projects that you're involved with right now, which started out as a collaborative with the Carter Center, is the Democracy Resilience uh, Project. Tell us a little bit about what that uh, uh, organization is all about.
4: Well, we're looking at galvanizing folks, Bill, into um, um, re-norming our engagement so that we can have a democratic republic that engages in a civil way that sets standards in our elections processes that are about accessibility um, and civil engagement so that we can maintain a republic and, as Ben Franklin would say, keep a republic. So, we're renorming through uh, looking at behaviors of both citizens and their participation, as well as candidates and how they run campaigns in our elections process. So, uh, this and, has been and- an interesting work.
1: And you did some of that in the midterm election, I know. But you you said just before the show went on the air that you're now looking to uh, uh, look at how the right engages in uh, more appropriate behavior around elections. And we do have to say, Leo, that uh, 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 people who say elections are fake, people who pass election laws that many consider to uh, suppress voters— a lot of that does seem to be coming from the right these days, Leo.
4: Uh, certainly, that is true. I mean, there's a lot of uh, disinformation that is based on fear, concern about losing power. Um, we're, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, how people react when they feel feel that their power is being lost in the legislature. Uh, we saw that in Tennessee, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit today. Um, and so that's what the deeper issue is: how do we maintain demographic shifts? while the politics of power sharing um, become violent or where violence and aggressive methods are used in a way that destroy democracy. So that's what this is about deeply.
1: And we should say all of that coming from uh, a man who has been a a longtime Republican and at one point worked with uh, the Georgia Republican Party. Let's get right to uh, uh, the top topic that I have on my plate for today, Tomorrow. Um the controversy over uh, uh, construction of the planned Atlanta Police Training Center continues, and we now this morning see in the pages of your newspaper, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, that Reverend Dr. Bernice King has written a pretty strong essay uh, in which she she tries to talk about both sides here, saying, you know, they each have their own perspective, uh, but in the long run, she, I mean, if you don't mind, tomorrow, and then I'll ask you to weigh in. Um, she says, uh, the reality is we have yet to create models where, quote, police reform is not simply a recommitment to the status quo. Criminal justice system transformation and improving public safety must coexist, especially during a time marked by rising crime. She acknowledges that some of the protests around the police training center, have been violent and have been infiltrated by anarchists and destruction who have been destroying property. She uh, insists that that has to stop. But then she goes on to say, our city, the corporations and institutions and those with more resources have power participation, but marginalized communities experiencing the trauma of racism, police brutality, and economic and environmental disparities do not. It is time, she says, to address those concerns. It's a strong statement that raises new questions uh, for many about what's going to happen with this police training center.
0: Yeah, you're seeing Dr. Kim King really step into the arena on this in a way that I think the leaders of a lot of groups have maybe been a little hesitant as this debate has unfolded. And her op-ed Ends on the note that she's urging city officials to revisit the programming and design of the training center to find a more suitable location. And she says, quote, ignoring the calls of the community will only multiply the multiply the crimes, uh, the cries. And obviously it's a pretty strong statement um, from someone who's, you know, the daughter of, of MLK Jr. Um and I think you know it's a it's a pretty big win for for protesters of this police training center, and one that I'm sure will only add more fuel to this this debate.
1: Sonia, this comes though after a period of time in which Mayor Dickens, starting with his State of the City speech a couple of weeks back, and uh, and doing a number of media appearances since then, has doubled down. On building this facility, building it at the location that has been chosen in DeKalb County, um, despite uh, the protesters, and and um, I'm curious what what your thoughts are as you uh, read that piece by Bernice King, but also think about Mayor Dickens' com- continuing commitment to build this facility there.
3: Well, I think um, that for you know one of one of the principal responsibilities of government, right, is the kind of safety and security of its people. Crime has risen uh, over the last several years, although we are now on a downward trend, which which is good news, especially if it continues to hold and move in that direction. But ultimately, you've got a police force that you want to train appropriately, that needs to have the kinds of resources and really location. Right now, the message that's being sent to our uh, law enforcement officers um, is that we perhaps don't think as much of them as as we should given where we send them to even train to do the job that they are to do. We can have conversations about should police still be doing X versus Y. And those are great conversations to be having. We can have conversations around what it means um, to have both public safety and police accountability. Those are important conversations to be had. I think the mayor's struck a very good balance in trying to make sure that law enforcement understands that they are um, an important department, that the center is and this training facility is going to be able to provide them with the best training out there. It is going to then allow the city to be able to attract and retain officers, which we have to do um, while also contemplating this issue around police accountability.
1: Meg, uh, there was a, I'm sorry. Finish, Sonia.
3: No, no, no. I mean, I think I think we end up in conversations that are kind of either or, but we really can multitask and be discussing both at the same time, and that's the chord that the mayor has been trying to strike.
1: Meg, um, there was a time when we thought that many of us thought um, that these protests were going to be um, minor distractions from the ultimate building of this training center. Now, the training center may still be built, but the protests are no longer minor distractions. They have risen to be very important in how the community looks at what's happening over at that piece of land in DeKalb County.
2: Certainly. And, you know, as the senator was just saying, and with all these debates about police reform and what that looks like and a holistic, overarching desire, even though it looks different to different people and different stakeholders, to implement reforms in police forces across the country, that is present. But that is difficult to reconcile at times with folks on one side who would say, well, you know, we don't really have a whole lot of trust or faith or, um, you know, we're just not really sure that our police are really standing up for us and that they perhaps don't have their own agenda or their own biases or other constructs that they bring into actions of policing. So that's tough. And that's tough for for office holders, for policymakers to reconcile a lot of those concerns. But in these times when there, is, there are a lot of passions, there are a lot of opinions, there are a lot of feelings about all of these issues that are wrapped up in this, really moving forward. Forward with big projects like this is difficult. And so, especially as we see today, for someone um, whose family obviously has been involved for literally generations in efforts toward um, civil union, civil, um, you know, bringing, bringing all sides together in places, especially like Atlanta. Um, for Bernice King to be weighing in with these thoughts. She is certainly somebody whose opinions will be heard and listened to as all of the debates over this project go forward.
1: Leo, one of the one of the criticisms uh, that's gone, gone on for quite some time now is that there are many people, yes, I, I know that the mayor uh, has had a, an advisory group of citizens from the community, but there are an awful lot of people who feel that there just has never been a real grassroots uh, commitment uh, or, or a commitment made to listening to the grassroots people across the city in this. And Bernice King emphasizes that. She says, uh, we need to ensure all members of our community have an equitable voice in uh, decision-making. True power is magnified when shared, not diminished. Well, that's a lovely and lofty goal, and it's not going to happen in every instance, obviously. But her point here is uh, to emphasize what protesters have said, and that they don't believe that the people have had enough opportunity to weigh in on all of this.
4: No, and, and indeed. And I think she makes that mention in her, her great piece that she wrote in the AJC about properly consulting in a timely fashion with substantive and transparent conversations. But we also need an overarching system for these types of developments as we struggle with democracy's resilience. I mean, what do you do when things have changed so drastically and issues are so critical? That the the worst parts of men and women are are brought out because of fear and concern and the emotional nature of loss of life in this uh, public safety training facility protest. And then also just the real issues that we have to deal with when we have a Commonwealth, when the corporate engagement there is about how do we keep a market going? How do we keep capitalism working with when we have disruptive forces like and, and, and you know uh, people coming and destroying property? And even as we look at bringing the DNC convention here, that's an issue. How much violence will occur in a community? Do they have the ability, the public safety services from firemen to uh, police officers, officers to actually host an event. All those things are critically important as much as it is as people feeling dignity and safety in their ongoing lives. And uh, Dr. King brings that up and I think she's aligned with Mayor Dickens' uh, uh, specially appointed task force, which I have been appointed to that task force as well. um, That is revisioning that facility. I'd like to learn more about um, Dr. King's uh, ideas uh, on relocating the facility because of course, NIMBYism not in my backyard is is gonna be come into that i mean where do you put it i mean won't there be protest about that location as well so i'm not so sure what ideas are there but certainly i think that i hear from her something that we need to hear that we need well, re- better public safety visioning
1: real, real quickly leo as a member of that task force how empowered do you feel you've all been in making input about what this facility is going to be
4: I think that we're just starting. We haven't had our first meeting yet. In fact, we're going to be having it this week. And uh, that's part of the revisioning. Uh, Mayor Dickens inherited this uh, situation from Mayor Bottoms, of course. And he's playing catch up. And I think he's admittedly um, acknowledged that, hey, you know, I'm really catching up to this. I'm going back, relooking at the process, making sure that we're engaging all constituents and including all voices. I think he's doing a good job of that. And now the strategic um, process has to take. Place And as uh, Dr. King brought out uh, her father's um, allusion to Cicero, that freedom is participation and power. So power exists and we've got to get people at the table. But we have to have deep conversation as what it means holistically from market forces to capitalism to our faith community. Um, Everybody has to be involved in this.
1: I want one final note on this, tomorrow before we move on. Um, we hear frequently, and in fact, um, Bernice King refers to it in her piece, um, about uh, the training center as a place that will continue the militarization of the police force. The reality is we as a public have heard very little about the kind of training that will be done at this or any other uh, police force training center right now that might dissuade people from believing that somehow this is like a militaristic facility.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a criticism that we've seen throughout this debate is we don't really know a ton about what's going to be happening at this center. Um, We haven't heard much from police on their plans for it. Um, You know, the city I know has released um, blueprints to kind of show what to expect on site. Um, But I do think that's what you're hearing from activists frequently is, well, we don't really know what's going on, so we might be expecting the worst.
1: Okay, Um, let's uh, move on. Tomorrow, we haven't had a chance to talk to you uh, since uh, Donald Trump made his speech last Tuesday night after being arraigned in New York City. And, And I'm really glad that we do have an opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, because of course uh, he not only talked about Alvin Bragg, uh, who he called a racist um, for uh, indicting him, uh, but he also of course talked about Fonnie Willis. He said that she was conducting a fake investigation in Fulton County. He called her a racist, and um, uh, and and Fannie Willis had a chance to respond. She talked to uh, Channel Two. Uh, news and said uh, that Trump's comments don't concern her at all. She says, I support his right to be protected by the First Amendment and say what he likes. People have the right to say whatever they choose to say, as long as it does not rise to the level of threats against myself, my staff, or my uh, family. Uh, But of course, uh, she said his comments were ridiculous. Damar?
0: Yeah, I mean, this rhetoric from former President Trump is nothing new when it comes to the Fulton investigation. He's long called D.A. Willis a racist. He's talked about her being a young and ambitious prosecutor who might have higher political ambitions. And he's repeatedly referred to what he has called a perfect phone call between him and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Um, It is worth noting, especially as he's ratcheted up his uh, criticism of DA Alvin Bragg in Manhattan not only has he called him a racist but also an animal um which is pretty racist language when you consider that uh DA Bragg is is black and i think we're expecting similar language to be thrown at at fulton prosecutors as um you know should should the DA here decide she wants to pursue an indictment against trump um and so I think everyone's viewing what's, what's going on in Manhattan as sort of a dry run for what could occur in Fulton County should indictments be handed up here.
1: Um, Meg, uh, this speech, which is now a week old, nevertheless, is worth talking about because the indictment in New York continues. The, uh, the, he'll, he'll face criminal uh, trial uh, sometime late this year. But, you know, <laughs> the judge warned him last Tuesday in court, to watch his language, uh, to not attack uh, the court itself, to not attack the prosecutors and the like. And, of course, uh, Trump uh, follows his own counsel on in situations like that, Meg. I'm not sure that he's helping himself much with the judge who's going to preside over that Manhattan case.
2: Yeah, you know, while that um, while the arraignment itself was going on, we expected this to be kind of brief and it was dragging on and on. And once we finally heard from the reporters who were actually in the courtroom, that's when we figured out that the reason this was taking so long last week was in large part because of those admonishments, because of um, the judge, you know, kind of warning in advance um, the former president and his counsel. Hi, like you really need to tone it down. We've been seeing these these images that have been posted on social media and other places of the former president with a baseball bat and a picture of Alvin Bragg and kind of drawing the line between the implication there. Um, And of course, the attorneys for the former president arguing, no, that's not what he meant. That's just an American made baseball bat. Um, whatever any of that means, yes, you know, there is an assumption that the warning has been made that Donald Trump not incite his protesters to do anything that could be perceived as violence as these cases go forward. That's certainly important. We didn't see um, we didn't see as many protesters as perhaps had been expected when he was in court in New York last week. But the case in Georgia is ongoing. Obviously, we have also heard that it potentially could be the one that the former president is most worried about. Um, there are several investigations ongoing in other places in DOJ and beyond, but Georgia might be the one that concerns him the most. And so obviously we're watching it extremely closely um, in terms of rhetoric and, and also, you know, anything that happens in court and otherwise, because this really might be as we get going in this 2024 campaign where Donald Trump is a candidate. Um, this might be the place that he's most worried about.
1: Meanwhile, um, uh, Sonia, just yesterday, uh Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan in the U.S. House said that he is going to take the House Judiciary Committee on a road trip to New York City, that the committee is going to hear testimony on the out-of-control crime in the city and the fact that Alvin Bragg, rather than going after crime, is instead uh, going after Donald Trump. It's part of this um, Republican House effort to undermine and, uh, the investigation and now the indictment that Bragg has brought against Trump. By the way, Chase McGee looked at some crime statistics from New York for us the other day and points out that, in fact, violent crime is down in New York um, over a period of 20, 20 years. In fact, murders, um, at bank uh, rape, uh, robberies are, in fact, uh, down a bit.
3: Yeah, I... I think think, uh, an effort to deflect, I mean, and certainly Donald Trump, who is running for president in 2024, uh, clearly still has a grip on his party and the support of many of the folks who are already up in Congress who want to make sure that, um, that they are protecting him, I would say, to some extent. Uh, and this road trip to New York, I think, is an example of that. Let's instead focus on the fact that this TA should be uh, looking only at crime and, you know, this idea that uh, uh, that the district attorney cannot multitask and cannot actually be focused on the crimes that... Um, are thought to have been committed by donald trump former president while also focusing on other crimes that are happening in that city i think it is um you know kind of a look over here at this shiny object instead of focusing on what's really happening and with all of the counts of misconduct that donald trump is facing i mean this is this is a pretty significant uh, these are significant charges and uh, we will see what happens as the case goes on, but it's it's we should not be we should not be lured into thinking this is not meaningful, and instead be focused on something like crime in New York City.
1: Leo, uh, Fani Willis has faced uh, similar criticism. Um, she's got a big caseload, the big one right now, the YSL the Young Thug trial, um, which is a sprawling case. Um, And so she is is already under some uh, fire for uh, worrying about Donald Trump. Um, And that's only going to escalate as she comes closer and closer to making a decision and announcement of what she's going to do about the people she's been investigating.
4: Yeah, she's dealing with a lot. And I must say that I'm I'm very impressed with her, her uh, temperament um, as she approaches all these things. I mean, she's clearly got thick skin. She's not easily triggered. Donald Trump works hard to trigger a lib. Um, and that's, you know, what we are seeing at play here. He's raising a lot of money through uh, using methods that actually encourage donor participation right now uh, on the far stream, right? Um, owning a liberal, getting them to be triggered to anger them. You know, if you're going to destroy the liberals, you must first anger them, you know, alluding to a long Henry uh, Longfellow quote, uh, to whom the gods must destroy, they must first make angry. And uh, so so Republican strategists are involved with Trump and they know some of this stuff works. Uh, they know that you know, we've often or Republicans have often been called racist and and in ways that were not legitimate. And so they're gonna overdo that and, and and take it to a whole nother level calling pretty much anybody who's against our ideology uh, racist this stuff is going to continue until we really have some strong con- um, conversations about what's ailing america socially
1: all right let's do this let's get to our first uh, break of the show today and when we come back we have a lot more to talk about with our panel Meg Kennard, Tamara Hallerman, Leo Smith, and State Senator Sonia Halpern join us for today's Political Rewind. Um, Tamara, Xavier Basara, the uh, head of HHS, was in Georgia yesterday and very forcefully said that uh, the government, the feds, were going to uh, fight uh, the ruling by Matthew Kaczmarek, the the district court judge in Texas, who ruled that uh, the FDA had to stop approving, had to stop its approval of mifepristone, the first uh, in the two-drug regimen that uh, people have been using for, women have been using for abortions for 20-plus years now. And, of course, DOJ yesterday did formally file for a stay. Judge Kazmarek put a seven-day stay in place to give uh, DOJ a chance to respond But DOJ is saying, look, we want to have a robust defense of our right to keep FDA uh, uh, approval of this drug. So we're asking for a much longer stay. Nevertheless, this has become just an extraordinary um, uh, controversy. To me, it it strikes me it feels a lot like the response after Dobbs uh, last year.
0: And certainly, this is the most substantial ruling we've seen from the courts related to abortion since Dobbs. But I think there are much broader implications at play here. Um, FDA is seen as the gold standard when it comes to approving of drugs. So if now a court and a judge who is appointed, you know, appointed by a partisan president, if a judge can stop the distribution of of judges, or sorry, of of drugs, even after a really long appeal process at FDA, um, what could this mean more broadly for drugs that have nothing to do with abortion? And I think there's a big fear here um, if a judge could strike down anything, even stuff that's been used widely for decades. So I I think there are much broader fears at play here, way beyond abortion.
1: Um, Sonia, I, I, I got a couple questions yesterday from listeners because we talked about the conflicting rulings. We, we have Kaczmarek in uh, Amarillo, Texas, uh, basically putting a nationwide ban on the use of Mifepristone. And then in Washington state, another uh, federal judge, a district court judge, said, no, uh, FDA can continue making sure that Mifepristone is available in 17 states. And people are saying, well, what's the difference there? Why Kasmeric nationwide, why the Washington uh, court 17 states. The difference is that the Washington judge was responding to a suit specifically filed by 17 states uh, saying we want Mifepristone to remain an option for women seeking an abortion. But go ahead and uh, comment on all this.
3: Well, I mean, this is the difficulty because uh, I think to the point that was just made, uh, it, it, when you've got courts weighing in on drugs that the FDA has approved, it is, it is a large concern. And I, 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 you know, I am pro-choice, um, but I do think that this particular and th- these cases, it is beyond just abortion. And at some point, we are going to have to contend with and really have conversations about, you know, where do lawmakers, where do courts um, get to weigh in on health decisions generally and access to approved drugs that, um, that, as was said, the FDA is the gold standard uh, in this regard. And so I think it causes a lot of confusion. You've got different judges saying different things. I think you've got women who are feeling very much in, in limbo at the moment. You've got messages that are uh, being driven by pro-choice groups that are saying, wait, but it's still legal right now. Um, don't worry. You've got pro-life groups that are cheering and applauding the the, the, the move to start to limit things, um, including, you know, medical abortion, which really is the way that the vast majority of women in this country um, are Having abortions these days, um, some of these drugs too just know can't be used to treat other things uh, beyond just abortion. And so there's big question marks that are raised for people who understand that and are using drugs for other purposes as well. It's a lot of confusion, and it makes our healthcare in general feel very partisan and i think that is part of the damage that's being done right now um, is that everything feels partisan and therefore you can't trust any of the information that you're getting
1: meg
3: you know it, it, that's absolutely
2: i would agree with with a lot of the the politicization points that were just made in terms of healthcare it feels like we're kind of dealing with with these issues in a new environment. And I'll explain what I what I think that means. Obviously there are many debates across the country dealing with issues related to abortion um, with with regard to you know kind of the fallout from the overturning of Roe last year. So it's kind of inevitable that we see different pieces of medication, procedures, timelines related to abortion being litigated and debated in state houses and then in courts throughout the country as they are challenged. But also, I think it's important to put this in the context of the past couple of years in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic And all of the the overall decisions that the underlying basis for a lot of them, some would argue, were politics in terms of vaccines and masking restrictions and and other things that were put into place by, at that point, a lot of times state-based leaders, governors, were making these decisions for their own states and also being debated in those state houses. And so that kind of put a lot of us into this, this environment of Healthcare decisions, decisions being made related to medication and procedures and what was available to whom and when being debated at a political level. Which obviously that has happened a lot in our nation's history, but given that we just went through that as a country in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, I think what we're seeing is a lot of the decision making and the arguments that were the basis for some of those decisions now perhaps <laughs> playing out as they relate to these current debates about issues like here with abortion medication.
1: Leo?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think Meg is uh, is spot on that we just went through this horrible um, experience with COVID um, and the distrust that folks have with both CDC, the FDA. I think Morning Consult in 2020 did that poll that showed that one in four Americans thought COVID decisions were purely political um, that the FDA made their decisions. And so uh, certainly now building off of that, we continue to have this distrust of science um, happening. And it is not just, and it's not right or left necessarily. It's it's a lot of Americans starting to feel this way. We have to rebuild the process for Americans to critical think about what is truth and what is science and then relate that to some of the political decisions that have been made. And then get people to trust in authority of science more than they trust in political rhetoric and partisanship. And that's that's the part of the work that we have to do. So um, that's where we are. And we're going to need better spokespeople out of science. And so that's it. We're going to have to figure that out.
1: Um, Tamar, it appears that Republicans are scrambling to figure out just what's going on with abortion and the impact it's going to have on their future elections um ron mcdaniel uh in the last day or so uh set out to uh chairs of republican parties across the country uh, a survey that showed that um uh, most uh, americans believe that people should be able to have abortions up until i think 17 weeks of pregnancy when it comes to what happened in kasmarek's courtroom there are very few republicans mike pence being one of the exceptions were willing to speak out and say, thank goodness that he uh, made the ruling that he did. And then you add to that uh, the fact that up in Wisconsin, of course, Janet Protasiewicz uh, wins the state Supreme Court seat that was so highly contested, most expensive court race in history, uh, because she said over and over again that she would tilt the balance of the Supreme Court in that state so that they would be able to overturn Uh, Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban. Republicans don't really know what to do next on this.
0: It's a tricky issue because... For many members of the base, they're extremely animated by abortion, and they want it to be illegal in all cases. And these are folks who are extremely active in the party. Um, you know, they're they're going to all these conventions on the weekends, and you know, raising raising rising through the ranks of the parties. But at the same time, mm. you also have folks um, who are more centrist, who especially women, um, especially people who lean a little more independent, um, who do believe at least in some right to abortions. I think. I think it gets icky when you start drawing lines, and everyone's definition about what should be legal is different. And I think that's what's so hard. You talk to one person who believes, well, maybe the, the six week ban is okay. You talk to others who say maybe to 12 or 16 weeks. It's just hard to appease everyone. And no matter what you do, Um, you're going to anger people in your own party. It was almost easier when abortion was legal nationwide because then everyone in the party had something to rally around. They didn't want the full kind of where we were. I think it just gets hard when you're in power and you have to draw a line somewhere.
1: I should have made the point that Protasiewicz won her race by an overwhelming margin, 11 points. It was clear that people supported her on the issue of choice. Meanwhile, Sonia, one last comment about this from you. Um, We are awaiting a ruling from the Georgia Supreme Court on the uh, heartbeat abortion law here in Georgia. There are people who feel that some of your Republican colleagues in the legislature this session who would like to have moved towards even more restrictions on abortion were kind of frozen in place because they didn't want to do anything until the state Supreme Court ruled.
3: Yeah, that's true. And then you have other other folks who um, also are glad to have it just sit here for a moment where they don't have to take action and make any other decisions don't have to move on it. There is a lot of pressure to move as a party. And that is both as Democrats and Republicans. Um, And it is one of the things that I think my very first session, I came out and people said, what surprised you most? And I I said, you know, kind of the pressure to conform. And so, um, you know, I think that there are quite a number of people, like I said, who are also happy that it is in the courts, Um, There is no action that has to be taken at this moment. And so we did not see any action taken this past session, which, um, you know, for me was a breath of relief. But um, who knows, Once, once the final decision's made, then there will be decisions to be made. And we will have to see how that goes. Um, I do think that the issue of abortion is becoming a much thornier issue for Republicans than it has over the many decades leading up to this Dobbs decision. And so there is some contention the Republican Party um, is going to have to do around this particular issue. And in some ways, uh, um, I mean, they, they. there, there is a concern. If you are trying to hold power and you know that it's also animating women in a way um, that you had not expected it to, there are plenty of people in the General Georgia General Assembly who, this predated my time there, but who voted for the six-week ban because they never imagined that uh, the Supreme Court would actually overturn Roe v. Wade or Dobbs versus Jackson, as it turns out. And so... We shall see what happens, but the next move is the courts, and then we'll see we'll see what comes of it.
1: All right, um, we are eagerly awaiting everyone uh, the state supreme court's uh, ruling on that. Let's get to our final break of the show, and we'll be back with more in a moment. Sonia Halpern, um, you are a member of the minority party in the Georgia legislature. Democrats um, are often at odds with the Republican majority and what they push through the legislature. But I think it's safe to say that you have not dealt with a situation as um, apocalyptic as what happened in Tennessee when uh, two young black House members, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, were expelled for participating in a protest in the legislative chamber, in the House chamber, uh, among people who uh, were pushing the Tennessee legislature to uh, pass some gun safety laws in the aftermath of the terrible uh, school shooting um, in Nashville. Um, It turns out now that Justin Jones uh, has been reappointed temporarily to his seat by the Nashville Metro Council. He's going to have to run... For re-election, Justin Pearson is expected to be temporarily appointed to his seat again, and he too will have to run for uh, re-election. But this is what happens when a supermajority takes control, and it strikes me, Sonia, more than just the fact that the supermajority has the votes, they have just they have an echo chamber. They're talking only to each other. They don't hear other voices, so they can be spurred to take action. That in the long run probably is not in their best interests.
3: I agree. Um, the situation in Tennessee strikes me as not just alarming, which it is, but heartbreaking too. Um, to expel two lawmakers, and you know, let's be clear, three resolutions were put mm. forward. Two lawmakers were expelled. One was spared by just one vote, but still spared. Um, it is, it, obviously, this is being framed as, you know, partially, at least racially motivated when the two young Black lawmakers are the ones that are expelled and the one white woman lawmaker was spared. Um, it, it's it, it actually... <laughs> To, one of the things that I've been saying since I got elected is really trying to share with people how important what goes on in your state legislatures is and how much the work that we do really does shape the experience that you that you have your lived experience and and I think this Tennessee the example should really awaken people and open their eyes to what happens in state legislatures and why it's so important to make sure that you are paying attention, that you know who you're voting in, that you understand the positions that are being taken. Um, You know, I sit today, District 39, uh, is a seat that was formally held by julian bond who himself in the 60s when he uh was elected for the house they refused to seat him three elections he won and was refused and denied to be seated um, and so ultimately the u.s supreme court weighed in and they determined that the action of the georgia house was unconstitutional and that they had to allow him to take his seat and participate. Uh, I, I, I think that the actions in Tennessee are going to reverberate, you know, well beyond j- just this particular moment in time. I think it will awaken folks, again, like I said, to how important the work that we're doing is and to really get engaged. Uh, these two young men have become really, you know, kind of national, uh, Democratic rising stars overnight uh, and they're, they are really speaking out well and representing their constituents well, which is why you saw that the Metro Council just reinstated the one, uh, Justin Pearson's ex- the same thing is expected to happen with him. Yes, they'll have to run for, to fill the seat in the final special election, but they are, uh, I think, poised to win those seats. And there is, political attitudes are changing, demographic trends are shifting, and I think that there is a role for the majority party and there is a role for the minority party. And and we talked about it in one of our segments that we just had, this idea of power sharing. Um, there is a role for each, and really silencing dissenting voices is not going to strengthen our democracy. And. And we need to keep that in mind. We're not a monolith. <laughs> and Tam- Tamar- we're, we're multiracial, multiethnic. We're not a monolith.
1: Tamara, I believe I'm correct that you were covering uh, 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 Washington when John Lewis... Uh, Let a sit-in on the floor of the U.S. House, literally a sit-in on the floor of the House uh, calling for gun control legislation. Um, they were He was reprimanded along with a number of his colleagues for that. Obviously not as significant as what happened in Tennessee, but I did think about it.
0: Yeah, I believe it was in the aftermath of the pulse shooting in Orlando, um, and a pretty remarkable moment and you heard john Lewis's name invoked quite a bit um, over this debate over what happened in Nashville these last few days. Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to Nashville and spoke at Fisk University, which is Lewis's alma mater. I believe one of the expelled lawmakers attended there, and of course, Fisk is where John Lewis got his start in civil rights activism. I think the difference between the work he was doing and, of course, what Sonia was mentioning with um, with Julian Bond is now there's social media and a way to really galvanize young people who live far outside of of Nashville in a way that these other folks didn't have, and it really has. Made these expelled lawmakers as, you know, stars in a national respect in ways that I think the Republican legislators weren't anticipating.
1: Um, Leo, it's interesting that the Speaker of the Tennessee House has now said that if these two are reappointed, they will be welcomed back with open arms. Um, Both of them have said they never felt welcome. There were many ways when they were, before all this happened, they felt marginalized as members. But, um, it, I can't help but wonder if the speaker uh, hasn't suddenly realized what the heck were we thinking.
4: You know, in our deepest, most emotional moments as Americans, and we just experienced one in this past Easter Sunday where we still see that most Americans are segregated by Race when it comes to something as personal as faith participation, and that is a true thing. Uh, at our Georgia legislature, um, I am happy that we are not as egregious. We've seen some hostile processes. Uh, uh, we saw Nikema Williams engage uh, in, in in what was considered disrupting a governor's meeting, um, and you know we did not uh, take as as sharp of a knife a hatchet to this thing as as the Tennesseans did. But we have these issues where we don't talk to each other. Uh, We have caucuses in our state legislature that don't talk across race and class. I am certain of that. Uh, They don't talk across political ideology. We have to break through these structures in order to make sure that we have a participatory republic that makes sense and is representative. The, the the Tennesseans, I mean, they've gone off the chart. It was embarrassing as a Republican to watch what happened there. Um, and it, it does not show the kind of Wim F. Buckley, uh, the the, the Edmund Burke, the, you know, the mudsill of people who are building a Democratic Republic by participating and building something. We need all voices at the table. At the same time, those legislators did admit some complicity themselves and, you know, uh, not following the order, but they just ask that temperance be applied and don't fully eject them. And so what these, th- this uh, speaker is going to do, he's going to call this a victory for the Democratic Republic, a victory for our system. Okay. He's going to spin right. it and say that they, democracy worked, they're back.
1: Meg, Meg a final word from you on this.
2: Well, as we talked about before, Tennessee is my home state. And so I'm always very interested to see what's happening there from a governmental perspective, particularly. But I think it's important to note, as, as Sonia was saying, a lot of Democrats across Tennessee are really kind of seeing this as a moment where they're getting more attention and certainly in a positive direction, they would argue, than they have recently. I saw on Twitter a congressional candidate for the Democratic Party who ran in 2020 noted that he walked out to his mailbox, got a check um, which he ripped up since he's not running for anything currently. But that just shows that there are people across the country showing an outpouring of support for Democrats in Tennessee. We'll see if they're able to harness that energy when it comes to politics. But it is a moment for Tennessee, that's for sure.
1: AP's Meg Kennard, State Senator Sonia Helpern, uh, Leo Smith and Tamar Hellerman. Thank you so much. We're completely out of time for uh, today's show. But I'm really grateful to you all for uh, being with us. Uh, tomorrow, we bring uh, bringing back Sam Olins, Michael Thurman to uh, uh, talk with us uh, on the Republican and Democratic side of things. Andre Gillespie will be joining them and Greg Bluestein will be here as well. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please, everybody, take care, stay healthy and be kind to one another. See you all tomorrow.